0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're continuing with a chapter that basically carries us from the previous revolution and attempts at reforming it that, uh, based on the chapter title, will lead to war. Last time we read about some failing and insufficient reformations, and this section is bringing us closer to the precipice of war. So let's get started. On the eve of war, the Lena Gold Mining Company, about 30% of whose shares were in British ownership, was situated to the northeast of Lake Baikal in Siberia. Complaints by miners about working conditions were legion, and one complaint about the poor quality of food escalated into a strike in March 1912. The strikers' demands apparently included an 8-hour day, a 30% wage rise, the elimination of fines, and improvement in food supply. These were put to the company, which had the members of the strike committee arrested. On the 4th of April, miners demanding the release of their comrades were mown down by soldiers, with as many as 200 being killed and 400 seriously injured. Footnote 45 The massacre provoked a storm of outrage, comparable to that provoked by Bloody Sunday. Strikes and demonstrations, involving a broad swath of the public, swept across the empire, strikes being intense in major cities such as the capital, Moscow, and Riga. The economy was booming once again, and this made strikers more willing to walk off their jobs. According to factory inspectorate statistics, which covered around two-thirds of the total number of industrial workers, in 1912 there were 2,032 strikes with 725,491 participants, in 1913 2,404 with 887,096, and in the first half of 1914 3,534 with 1,337,458 participants. By the latter year, moreover, the majority were political, with metalworkers in the capital hugely overrepresented. Footnote 46 The radicalization of the labor movement reached its peak on the 3rd of July 1914 when government troops fired on Putilov workers, killing two. This triggered a general strike that even saw the erection of barricades on the streets of the capital. The Petersburg Society of Factory and Works Owners, quote, the most militant anti-labor association of businessmen in the empire, end quote, responded with a lockout. Footnote 47. The secret police reported that quote, the strike has taken extremely acute and disturbing forms. Yet for all their trepidation, they remained well informed about the activities of all the revolutionary left and were able to decapitate underground committees when they so chose. Footnote 48. In view of this, the recovery of the SDs and SRs during the years 1912 to 1914 was relatively modest, subject, as they were, to constant police arrest and infiltration. In January 1912, 18 Bolsheviks met in Prague and set up their own Central Committee, one of whose members, Roman Malinovsky, kept the Okhrana fully informed of its proceedings. And this event is conventionally seen as the initiation of a separate Bolshevik party. In May 1912, Bolsheviks in Russia began to publish Pravda, which was rather successful in attracting working-class readers. In the trade union movement, there was a shift to the left in the political leadership, with Bolshevik firebrands ousting more cautious Mensheviks in the metalworkers' and tailors' unions in St. Petersburg, and in the tailors' union in Moscow. Footnote 49. But factional strife within the socialist left alienated many workers, and a sizable section were hostile to political parties of all kinds. Despite their revival, K.K. Urenev the leader of the interdistrict organization founded in November 1913 to bring about unity among social democrats, offered a very bleak retrospective of the state of social democracy in St. Petersburg at this time. Quote, those were the most dismal days in the history of the RSDLP. They were years when liquidationism and hostility to political parties flourished years of most appalling factional and intrafactional squabbling. The squabbling between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks reached its apogee, the conflict going on in clubs and educational organizations. End quote. Footnote 50. It does seem that the Bolsheviks capitalized better than their opponents on the new mood of worker militancy, and they seem to have seized leadership at this time of the Latvian social democrats. Footnote 51. Yet the revival of the revolutionary left should not be exaggerated. The number of SD organizations, which had reached its nadir in 1911 at 109, rose to 132 in 1913, but then fell spectacularly following the outbreak of war, so that by February 1917 only 39 organizations were functioning, mainly at provincial level the number of SR organizations did not increase at all in this period. It stood at 102 in 1913 and had collapsed to 18 by 1917. Footnote 52. Meanwhile, high politics blundered along its myopic course, with the Duma, the Court, and the Council of Ministers unable to work with each other. A telling example came with the decision in 1913 to ban the production of alcohol, sale of which provided approximately 28% of government revenue. Footnote 53. From the last years of the 19th century, clergy and health professionals had waged a sustained temperance campaign, and more than 100,000 people were members of temperance societies by 1907 the decision to substitute complete prohibition for the state monopoly on the sale of vodka, which Nikola II had introduced in 1896, seems to have originated in nothing more than a spat between Prince Meshersky, editor of the Citizen newspaper, and V. N. Kokostov, the prime minister and former minister of finance. In 1912, Kokovstov made himself unpopular by calling for Rasputin to withdraw from the court, a call that angered the Tsar. Mashersky accused Kokovstvov of hysteria and limitless spite, and in turn was accused of indulgence of Jews to the detriment of the state. At the end of 1913 Mashersky successfully mobilized the Duma against Kokovstvov by inveighing against the latter's raising of the alcohol tax while he was Minister of Finance. With no regard for the fiscal implications, Mischerski's circle persuaded Nikola that it was his sacred duty to ban alcohol in order to improve health of the Russian people. In the event, prohibition was introduced by Nikola as a wartime measure in August 1914. The result was an enormous fall in revenue. The revenue from the sale of alcohol falling from 26.5% of the state budget in 1913, to a mere 1.5% in 1916, footnote 54. So to return to the question with which this chapter started, was Russia moving away from revolution on the eve of the war, footnote 55. In a thought-provoking book, Wayne Dowler concludes that despite, severe stresses and tensions, the clear trend before the war was towards cooperation and integration, End quote. Footnote 56. One can certainly adduce evidence in support of this optimistic conclusion. It is clear that the revolutionary parties of the left, battered during the years of reaction, had not managed to re-establish themselves on anything like the footing they had enjoyed in 1906. The radical right organizations, too, had gone into serious decline, propped up only by government subventions. Footnote 57 above all, the countryside was quiet. Footnote 58. It thus seems unpersuasive to speak of a revolutionary situation, even taking into account the barricades that had been erected on the streets of the capital, for with the important exception of areas such as the Caucasus, and to a lesser extent the Baltic, the police, and the Minister of the Interior seem to have felt confident that they could handle domestic disorder without the intervention of the army. Footnote 59. Dowley's book usefully captures the contradictoriness of trends in the post-1905 period, but his optimistic conclusion, quote, the passage of time in peaceful circumstances would likely have strengthened the middle-class liberal discourse, end quote, was not one shared by contemporaries. At the beginning of 1913, the magazine Ugenek Flame asked some leading public figures to offer toasts for the new year. Many commented on the heavy depression of the social mood, while a New Year's Day essay in Gazeta Kopika noted that the previous year's wishes for new happiness had produced not only no new happiness but no happiness at all, just bitterness and disillusionment. footnote 60 Certainly. Civil society was more entrenched than it had been in 1905, but the existence of a civil society is no guarantee of social cohesion. Crucially, the momentum for peaceful reform had stalled mightily, and there was something close to paralysis in government. This mattered not primarily because of internal social conflict, increasingly dangerous though that was but because there was now an immediate threat of war, for which the government was ill-prepared. Militarily, Russia was better prepared for war than in 1904. It had acquired a navy with modern battleships, a large army that was reasonably well-equipped, and an officer corps that had much improved in quality. Footnote 61. Yet in making Russia militarily stronger, rearmament had also served to increase tension between the great powers and increase the likelihood of war. Voices such as that of P. N. Dernovo, former Minister of the Interior, would warn in February 1914 of the appalling consequences of a war with Germany on domestic stability, yet most of the elite preferred to ignore the risk rather than back down in the face of Austrian aggression and thus forfeit great power status. Footnote sixty-two. Optimists often present their case by implying that war came out of the blue, blowing the ship of reform off course. It did not. The Tsarist government had pursued a policy of rearmament and a foreign policy that made war more likely, and the outbreak of war would massively exacerbate the deep-seated social tensions that had beset Russia since the government entered on a path of economic modernization. First World War On the 28th of June 1914, the assassination in Sarajevo of Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne by a Bosnian Serb, set light to the tinderbox that was the Balkans. Footnote 63 Fearful of the danger it faced from Slav nationalism, Austria saw the assassination as the moment to crush Serbian pretensions once and for all. With its relative position in decline, it calculated that so long as it could rely on Germany, the risk of a general war was worth taking. For their part, the Germans reckoned that not to support Austria would be to allow Russia time to continue its military build-up and to thwart their aspiration to expand into Eastern Europe. When Russia threatened to mobilize against Austria, Germany warned that it would deem this sufficient grounds for war. On the 26th of July, the Tsar ordered military districts in European Russia to move onto a partial war footing, and this accelerated two days later when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Russia's mobilisation prompted Germany to declare war on the 1st of August. Fearing encirclement and with a war plan that envisaged taking out France before turning on Russia, the German government sent an ultimatum to Belgium on the same day, demanding passage through the country in order to attack France, Russia's great ally. Hanging back, in spite of a secret commitment to France, Britain declared war on the 4th of August, as German troops crossed into Belgium, violating its neutrality. All the belligerents claimed to be acting defensively. In reality, all were bent on exploiting the war to further imperial ends. Following the entry of the Ottoman Empire into the war, Russia committed to securing the Bosphorus as the fruit of victory, and in 1915, the cadets and the Octoberists in the Duma added to this claims on the Austrian-ruled Galicia and a chunk of Anatolia. These manoeuvres proved to be the prelude to warfare on a scale never seen before, in which the capacity of states to mass mobilise material and human resources was as critical as success on the battlefield. The war unleashed extermination too on a hitherto unprecedented scale, legitimising mass slaughter and destroying 19th century confidence in progress and civilization. Between 8 and 10 million soldiers died, out of a total of roughly 65 million combatants. 21 million were wounded, and between 5 and 6 million civilians lost their lives. Footnote 64. Russia bore an enormous share of the military burden. By the end of the war, Her armed forces were 8.5 times larger than before the war. Germany's had grown ninefold, Austria-Hungary's eightfold, and France's fivefold. By June 1917, 288 out of 531 Allied divisions were Russian. Footnote 65 Despite the barricades in the streets of St. Petersburg, the declaration of war brought working-class insurgency to a shuddering halt unleashing a surge of patriotism across Russian society. On the 20th of July, a vast crowd gathered along the banks of the Neva River in St. Petersburg to await the arrival by yacht of Nikola, Alexandra, and their daughters. The Tsarevich was ill. The two dreadnoughts, Gangut and Sevastopol, anchored at the mouth of the river, fired salvos as the royal yacht appeared. The imperial family disembarked into a steam launch that took them to the Winter Palace as cannon were fired from the Peter Paul fortress across the river. The crowd was in raptures, many of them on their knees, shouting hurrah and singing the national anthem, God Save the Tsar. In the Malachite Hall of the Winter Palace, the Tsar signed the declaration of war, which proclaimed, quote, In this fearsome hour of trial." Let internal dissension be forgotten. May the unity between Tsar and people become ever stronger, and may Russia, risen up as one, repel the impudent onslaught of the enemy. Quote. Footnote 66. The scene encapsulated a moment of intense but short-lived patriotism. In the third week of August 1914, the First and Second Armies advanced into East Prussia. They were poorly organised and hampered by lack of support services and poor communication with the front headquarters, known as Stavka. The Germans scored victories at Tannenberg on the 26th to the 30th of August and the Masurian Lakes on the 7th to 14th of September, capturing more than 250,000 Russian troops. For the rest of 1914, Russian casualties continued to mount in a series of bloody battles in Poland, but the inability of the German armies to extend too far beyond railheads was also exposed. Footnote 67. On the southwestern front, the war against Austria-Hungary, which began with the invasion of Galicia on the 20th of August, went rather better. Initially hostilities went in Austria's favour, but the Russians soon captured Lemberg, Lviv, the Galician capital and invested the major fortress at Shamishal. Austrian efforts to relieve the latter in January and February failed, with the loss of 800,000 men, most of them to disease. On the 22nd of March, the garrison of 120,000 surrendered to the Russian army. The latter quickly created an administration in Galicia, which embarked on a violent program of russification and anti-Semitism. N. A. Bazili, director of the diplomatic staff at Stavka, opined that Russian farmers would welcome emancipation from Jewish oppression. Footnote 68. On every front, military zones, together with vast swaths of territory behind front lines, were put under martial law. Commanders at different levels issued edicts to enforce security, fix prices, forbid trade in goods, and requisition labour, and stir up pogroms against Jews whom they saw as shirking their military duty and as having non-Russian values." In early May, however, Austria and Germany combined forces to retake Galicia. In just six days, 140,000 Russian prisoners were captured, forcing Stavka to order the abandonment of the region on the 20th of June. The Central Powers then launched a three-pronged attack towards the Narrow River in northeast Poland and towards Kurland in western Latvia. A relentless offensive continued into September in the course of which Germany came to occupy Poland, Lithuania and large parts of Belarusia. The retreat of the Russian army turned into a rout. Front commanders ordered the burning of crops and property in the hundreds of square miles they evacuated, along with the forcible expulsion of at least a million civilians to prevent them from being conscripted by the Germans about 67 million people found themselves under enemy occupation. As the Baltic fell under German occupation, almost a million civilians were displaced from Lithuania and Latvia into central Russia, and about 300,000 Lithuanians, Latvians and Estonians were drafted into the Russian army. Footnote 70. By 1917, there were perhaps 6 million refugees, including half a million Jews, who had been expelled from front-line areas, footnote 71. As many as a million men were taken prisoner and another million were killed or wounded. Yet, the defensive capacity of the Russian army was not broken. On the 1st of November, 1914. Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire after the Black Sea Fleet was attacked in Odessa. For Russia, the Caucasus Front was always secondary to the Eastern Front, and the gruelling campaign to overpower Ottoman forces proved less than decisive. Ismail Envar was intent on recapturing Batum and Kars, which had been taken by Russia in the War of 1877-78, on seizing Georgia and on occupying northwestern Persia and the oil fields. The Russians and the Ottomans, who played the pan-Islamic card, fought bitterly in the Caucasus and in Persia, where the Russians struggled to link up with British forces. During the perishing winter of 1914-1915, to Envar Pasa's forces were overstretched and were resoundingly crushed at the Battle of Sarikamis. The defeated Turks blamed their setback on the treachery of Armenians, for the Russians had encouraged Armenian volunteer units to carry out sabotage against the Turkish army in early 1915, and their resistance escalated into a full-scale uprising at Van in April 1915. The Committee of Union and Progress reacted by ordering the mass deportation of the entire scattered Armenian population as many as a million may have been killed outright or expired as they made the trek towards Syria and Iraq footnote 72 in the later stage of the war most of the fighting took place in a wide area around Lake Van in eastern Anatolia there general NN Yudenich later the leader of the anti-bolshevik forces in northwest Russia proved an able commander Hostilities gradually swung in Russia's favour, with Ottoman forces fighting fiercely but suffering appalling losses, especially in the winter of 1916-1917. to 1917. But they were not defeated. As late as November 1918, the Ottoman army was still, quote, on its feet and fighting. End quote. Footnote 73. The number of men in the Russian armed forces in July 1914 is uncertain, but was probably around 1.4 million, and the mobilization of reserves soon increased this to around 3 million. By 1917, if one includes reserves, garrisons in the rear, and administrative staff, the number had soared to around 9 million, only 27% of whom were combat troops. Footnote 74 in all, about 16 million Russians were mobilized into the armed forces. Military regulations prevented women from joining, but perhaps some 5,000 women disguised themselves as men and took up combat duties. Women such as A.A. A. Krasilnikova, a 20-year-old miner's daughter, who was awarded the George Cross for bravery. Women, however, were far more likely to serve at the front as nurses and medical orderlies. In the rear, the Red Cross, Zemstvos, and doctors' organizations all put on training courses for nurses and nursing salaries proved relatively attractive. The Tsar's daughters served as trustees of military hospitals and were prominently depicted in nurses' uniforms in the press. A total of 2,255 Russian Red Cross society institutions operated at the fronts including 149 hospitals with 46,000 beds, served by 2,450 doctors and 20,000 nurses. Behind the front lines, there were 736 local committees, 112 nursing societies and 80 hospitals. But this was hardly a large number for the size of the army in the field. Footnote 75. Half the wartime casualties were suffered in the first year of the war. How far this was due to poor leadership and how far to the inability of the government to mobilise the economy to support the war effort is disputed. Certainly, during the German offensive of summer 1915, Russian troops were dogged by crippling shell shortage, and at times soldiers even lacked rifles and uniforms. The generals blamed shortages on the incompetence of the civilian administration, but there were similar shortages in other countries which had also gravely underestimated the likely length of the war. Poor military leadership and incompetence on the part of the Ministry of War were certainly causes of the hideous losses of the first year, especially when compared with the superior leadership and administration of the German armed forces. Stavka was hamstrung by overlapping jurisdictions, and the Supreme Commander-in-Chief, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, a 58-year-old cavalry general and distant cousin of Nicholas II, though admired for his past military record, proved a less than brilliant strategist. He was removed in August 1915, and the Tsar himself took command. General Mikhail Alexeev was effectively in charge. Nevertheless, one should not exaggerate the disastrous performance of the army in the first year of the war. Certainly. It was no match for the Germans operationally and tactically, but it fought with valour against the Ottomans and Austrians. Footnote 76 By 1916, the shell shortage had been overcome, and on the 4th of June, General Alexei Brusilov launched a brilliant offensive in the southwest along a 300-mile front. This was part of a coordinated allied strategy and proved that Russia was still a valued ally. In striking contrast to the disasters of the Somme and Verdun, the offensive inflicted terrible losses on the Austro-Hungarian army, which lost a third of its forces, almost bringing it to the point of collapse. As Galicia came under occupation for a second time, Russian officials were warned not to ban the Ukrainian language or denigrate the Uniate Church, as they had done in the first occupation. It was not long, however, before German reinforcements halted Brusilov's advance, leaving the Russians with little to show for their immense and costly efforts. Brusilov's success had persuaded Romania to join the Allies in late August, but its army collapsed rapidly, allowing the Central Powers to occupy most of the country. This merely added to the scale of the problems facing the Russian army, opening up a new Romanian front, forcing it to divert 47 divisions to the south in November and December. With losses of more than half a million men, morale plummeted. Footnote 77. The critical need to replace dead, wounded, and captured men was the trigger that led to an immense revolt in Central Asia. The settlement of Russians under Vita and Stolypin had led to mounting conflict with the native population over land and water rights, as intensive cotton extraction was developed in the Fergana Valley. In 1914, the native population of Turkestan was spared the draft, but on the 25th of June 1916, the government announced that 390,000 Kazakh and Kyrgyz males would be conscripted to build defensive fortifications in front-line areas. Muslim clerics were furious, and warned that the conscripts would be sent to fight against their brother Muslims on the Caucasus front, and that whilst they were far from their homes, their land would be confiscated and given to Russian settlers. The native population cut railways and telegraph lines, annihilated garrisons, and raided government offices. Colonel P.P. Ivanov, later a commander of the anti-Bolshevik forces in Siberia, ordered a ruthless pacification which saw Russian troops and settlers massacre and rape the native population. At least 88,000 rebels were slain, while 250,000 fled from Semereshi into China. Footnote 78 By late 1916, the resolve of the armed forces was deteriorating. In the course of the war, soldiers sent millions of letters to their loved ones, which censors used in order to draw up reports on morale on the different fronts and within different divisions. These generally reported that the soldiers' mood was cheerful, even in the second half of 1916 when the Brusilov offensive had stalled. Footnote 79 Over 80% of soldiers were peasants, but it is reckoned that around 70% could read or write to some degree. Footnote 80. An examination of their letters suggests that their patriotism, focused on love for their green and happy village, was heartfelt, but that it was certainly not associated with the Tsar or even with a sense that Russia was fighting for a just cause. The contradictory elements in soldiers' patriotism are often illustrated in a letter of the 25th of August, 1915, sent by a soldier who belonged to the 210th Infantry Regiment that hailed from Brunytsi in Moscow province. Quote, The Germans have created a cloud of gunfire, let loose a hellish volley, and reduced the trenches to dust. On the ground there's nowhere to stand. They've hit us all but we fulfilled our duty and did not let them pass through to Vilna. I think if all troops stood as we did, i.e. as our division did, then none of the fortresses would be given up, and this would become a real test for the enemy. But our reinforcements have almost given up without a fight. What else can we do? Take off our hats and say to the Kaiser, please come this way? We captured one officer, ten Germans and two machine guns, and they told us, We feel sorry for you, Russians. Why are you laying your heads on the line when you're already ours? That's what the prisoners said, straight to our face. You were sold out long ago. We bought Russia with the money that is in the German banks. The morale of our forces has fallen, and whole battalions, along with their officers, have surrendered to the Germans. They throw away their rifles, stick their hands in the air, and go over to the Germans to drink coffee. End quote. Footnote 81. Such sentiment was probably widespread. Pride in seeing one's regiment acquit itself with honour, disgust at the cowardliness, real or imagined, of some on one's own side, a grudging admiration for the Russians, and a suspicion that Russian rulers were in hock to German bankers. Such complex attitudes, with their mix of hard-nosed realism and a dash of class consciousness, did not equate to an absence of national identity. Footnote 82. But patriotism was focused on family, home, and the farm, which constituted a microcosm of the nation that soldiers felt they were defending against the foreign foe. Footnote 83. It was commonplace to contrast the fighting qualities of Russian and German soldiers, always to the detriment of the former. L. N. Voitelovsky a social democratic psychiatrist and editor of the literary section of the liberal newspaper, Kievan Thought, before entering military service, articulated a common view when he wrote, Among the Germans there is military firmness, discipline, bivouacs. Among us there is carelessness, bonfires, and the indolence of a Chumak camping ground. Chumaks were long-distance traders in southern Ukraine. Among them there is a firm desire to fight. Among us, there is daydreaming, singing, and yearning. Quote. Footnote 84. Such a view should be treated with caution. It was the standard reason given for why more than 3.3 million Russians ended up in German and Austrian prisoner of war camps, one in every five soldiers, which represented a proportion considerably higher than in other armed forces. Footnote 85. Yet, there were many battles in which Russian soldiers fought with valour, and during the initial campaign of 1914 and again in 1916, when the battles of the Somme and Verdun were raging on the Western Front, Russian successes forced Germany to move much-needed forces to the Eastern Front. The great loss of life and the great number of prisoners captured were more probably due to the fact that although there were periods of positional warfare, when trenches were built and military headquarters set up, warfare was far more mobile than on the Western Front, the generals were relying on costly campaigns, cavalry charges, and all-out assaults. Footnote 86 By winter 1916, there was growing war weariness in the army and navy, and an overwhelming desire to see the war come to an end. The number of complaints in soldiers' letters about inadequate supplies of food, poor footwear, and not getting leave rose steeply. Noteworthy, too, were denunciations of the horrors of war: of artillery attack, quote, it freezes the body and kills the soul, end quote, gas attack, and the scandalous treatment of the wounded. There was also increasing criticism of the civilian population especially although not exclusively of the privileged classes. Anger at what was felt to be the inability of the civilian population to imagine the horrors that soldiers were suffering. Footnote 87. There is no doubt that the sacrifices of the armed forces were colossal. Figures for the number of casualties vary considerably, but a well-researched estimate is of 1.89 million combat-related deaths which rises to a staggering 2.25 million if one includes deaths in captivity, from disease and from accidents. Footnote 88. It has been suggested that relative to the number of mobilized soldiers, to the size of the male working population and to the population as a whole, the Russian armed forces may actually have suffered less than other belligerent countries. Footnote 89. However, the total of combat-related deaths, the numbers of injured, ill, and gassed, and the numbers who were captured by the enemy comprises 60.3% of the total numbers in the army, compared with 59.3% for Germany, 55.9% for France, 54.2% for Austria-Hungary, and 53.3% for Turkey. Footnote 90 Leaving these appalling figures to one side, what is crucial to grasp is that the end of Tsarism came about not because of the breakdown in morale of the armed forces discipline held up remarkably well through the winter of 1916-17 despite growing war weariness, but because of acute disaffection on the home front. And that's going to do it for this week next time we will be finishing out this chapter as we talk about some of the home front angle on what was happening in this period. If you have any questions, comments, corrections or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about media of all kinds. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.